Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, welcome to Conspiracy Normal, everybody. It's your host Adam Sane. I'm flying solo yet again, all by my lonesome. Uh, but uh, I have on the line someone that uh, I'm really excited about getting on Conspiracy Normal, um, and have been uh, been wanting to get this person on for a very long time. And that is Dr. Barry Taff. Uh, Dr. Taff is, well, I would say pretty much a legend in his field of parapsychology. Um, one of the things you would probably best cases you would know Dr. Taft from is the Entity case, which we will speak about. But that was made into a movie, I believe, in the early '80s, called, of course, called The Entity, which I actually only got to see like <laughs> just about a couple of months ago. But uh, Dr. Taft, I want to welcome you on to Conspiracy Normal. Yeah, thanks, Adam. I'm uh, happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, what I want to get into first of all is kind of like a brief introduction about yourself and how you came to study parapsychology and kind of what, you know, for people that may not know what parapsychology, what that term means. Okay, well, let's define parapsychology in a way that hopefully everyone will understand. Parapsychology is a science that studies the way, the exchange of energy and information between people and the environment in ways that preclude the five known senses. So you're acquiring information that can't, isn't coming through normal mechanisms 
or you're affecting the environment in a way that we can't explain. And that's what parapsychology is somewhat of a misnomer because it's far beyond psychology, but they had to call it something, and that's where right. it is. Um, what got me into this field was not simple curiosity. It was experience. Um, I don't know about most other people, but I led a very strange young life. Um, I, ever since I was very young, I was having experiences that my friends and family were not telepathic, clairvoyant, precognitive, out of body, and I thought, well, everyone has these. Well, they may, but they don't talk about them. And um, So I'm a little different than other people. And what I've discovered over the last, well, I'm 66 now, well, is that this, it, when people are really different, it's, a, it's unique for a while, somewhat of a novelty. <clears throat> but if you're really different and it affects the way people perceive you, it's fun and games for a moment. And then they either want to... Uh, uh, you take advantage of who and what you are, or they are terrified of you and they want to run away and hide. Yeah. There's no, there should be no middle ground. Um, so, given that as a backdrop, I remember. Oh, let me think. Uh, let me think. Let me think. When I was in, oh, if you saw my family's album, my parents passed away some time ago. If you saw my family album, you would, you'd be like, well, where's Barry? How come Barry's not anywhere? Well, the problem is I've always had a problem had a problem with being photographed. Doesn't okay. happen every time, but but with re, such recurring regularity, especially when younger, that it was a joke. Um, and to be more specific, I discussed this in my book and on my website, BarryTaft.net. Um, there was an instance when, it, when the lab was open. My colleague and I went to uh, it's called Television City. In Los Angeles, they're on the southeast corner of Fairfax and Beverly, and they shoot a lot of TV shows there. Mm-hmm. So we got a call in the lab. They wanted to do interview us on the show. So we go, my colleague and I go down there, and we're talking to the people. And I was 74, I was 20, no, 78, I was 30, 29 or 30. And um, so they wouldn't take a picture of us. And my colleague at the time says, just out of the top of his head, well, Barry doesn't show up in pictures because he knew about my problem. And they went, yeah, right, he's a vampire. So I didn't say anything because <laughs> I thought, you know, why is he making these comments? Anyway, they used a Polaroid SX-70. They take a picture of us. My colleague is standing about a foot to my right, right next to me. The film comes out. It develops outside of the camera. And you see him perfectly. Where I was standing, there's just light. No face, no hair, no body, nothing. Just light that conforms to my body. Now, it wasn't like this was, you know, a piece of, if she brought a big xenon lamp in there, it would have obliterated myself and my colleague, not just me. So what was this? And then going back further, in high school, um, you know, your high school yearbook, you know, you're graduating, you got to go have your picture taken. So I go and take a picture of me, and they said, well, there's a problem here. Uh, You didn't show up. What? Yeah, it looks like a cloud in it. It was all black and white. Yeah, like a cloud. Like I wasn't even, no, no presence of me at all, just glowing light. Okay. okay. It took three more times before they'd get one picture of me they could use. Now, you see, I've never liked the way I've been photographed. I just don't like the way I look on camera. Anyway, that's my problem. Is this something in your studies that you've, uh, that you've encountered with other people? No. I mean, I know there are, I've read of many instances where people have problems either being photographed or taking pictures. And with me, it's in both direction. 
because um, I remember about 20 years ago, I was taking a picture of my parents. I don't know, for, forgot what reason. My father had one of those <clears throat> throwaway 35-millimeter cameras, so I took a couple shots. The, the films developed, and in every frame I took, there were luminous anomalies. It wow. looked like glowing red, orange, yellow lights around them. But in the frames I didn't take, other people took were normal. Wow. So, see, this is, you know, like, what's going on? Um, I, I just, yeah, there was an incident in 2009. I was speaking at Gettysburg, and this couple took my picture. Uh, this guy took a picture of me and his girlfriend. And you see her perfectly, and all you see where I am is a glowing cloud. <laughs> it's, um, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens with, you know, it's just, there's so many instances of this throughout my life that it's one of the reasons I didn't get into photography. So what's the point? Yes. If I keep doing this to film, what's the point? Right. Um, it's a dead end. And so, you know, when I, these things happen. I mean, when I was younger, I used to be able to put my hand up to the picture tube of a TV, and you'd see brilliant color, like a coronal effect around my hand. Well, that's the effect a magnet, strong magnet would have up on this old picture tube. Yeah. I did it, and the next day the TV would be dead. It was just dead. So I didn't do that anymore because it was, it was happening with such regularity. Um, it's, yeah, I wasn't bored. It, it's, again, why me? I don't know. These things happen. Let's go back. Um, let's see. In grammar, elementary school, you're 10 years old, you're in the fifth grade. And during, now, you know, I've always been short, and I always have looked young. And when I was that young, I was I looked like when I was in grammar school, I looked like it belonged in kid, kindergarten. I mean, it was a joke. <laughs> so we're playing recess, you know, in the recess, whatever. I'm playing some with some kids, I don't know. And this little blonde named Christine's walking towards me, and I'm looking at her. And she was a blue-eyed blonde, and I looked at her, and I said, I saw the strange image, like like looking through her. She had a long dress on, a one piece. It was powder blue. And I went, what's that? On her right side, I saw a plastic bag and a tube going into her. Now, I'm 10 years old. I didn't know what a colostomy was. How would I know yeah. what that is? Right. So I went up to her, and I asked her about it. She just freaked out and got the teacher. They dragged me in the principal's office. And he said, so what did you do? Did you sneak under in the girl's bathroom, or did you look under her dress? I said, I did neither. What do you mean neither? It just came on. He goes, what do you mean it came on? I said, you know, like Superman's X-ray vision. They went, what? Huh. huh? So, you know, he's about to call my mother. You're in trouble, said Mr. You know, Barry. So I looked at him, and a uh, big husky guy, thick brown hair, and um, wearing a dark blue suit. And uh, I looked at him. I said, well, you've got that scar where your appendix was taken out. Now you, I call it a, a, a keloid because I know what it is. I didn't know that word back then. Right. And he, turned, he turned purple on me. That's the scar looked. And um, it was amazing. Um, so he freaked out because he did have a keloid there. He called my parents. He talked to my mom. My mom said, yeah, he can do it. And he said, what do you mean he can do it? <laughs> can he, yeah, he can do it. He can do it. Okay, so okay, so, so he hung up She was just mom. blase about it. She didn't, well, I mean, she like, didn't want to talk uh, about it. She didn't want to yeah. discuss it at all. And so um, he said, okay, Barry. If this happens one more time here, you're, we're going to expel you from school, or we're going to have you arrested. 
<laughs> no, obviously I didn't. I've never had that. If I did have it happen, we don't remember. I never reported it, discussed it with anyone. So you know, I, growing up with this, and then um, oh god, I'm also I'm, I'm ever since I was a kid, I'm what's, I've been a medical intuitive. That word didn't exist when we were kids. Um, I remember in junior high, there was this one girl in school named Helene, and uh, she looked very normal. And whenever I got near her, even if I didn't know it, I would pass out. I mean, I'd be talking to a friend. She'd come up behind me, and she'd just, I'd block out. Oh, oh, before I forget, one more thing, one more thing. About not being photographed strange. I found a picture of me in my parents' album. November 1964, I was 16, looks like I'm 10 or 8. And you (laughs) see me in the backyard, and these weird colored lights are flying around me. No one saw it, but it was in the photograph. Wow. But anyway, so this girl, Helene, comes near me, and I kept blacking out. Turns out she's epileptic. And if I'm near, really close, standing too close to people who are epileptic, I'll, I start to black out. My body won't tolerate their, what their brain is doing. And uh, it's so bad. I remember when The Dark Knight came out in 2008. I was at a screening at the Director's Guild Theater here in, in Hollywood, and... Uh, I met her old friend there. I knew her from the UCLA day, so we drove separately. So we sit down. The film starts, and suddenly my bladder feels like it's going to explode, burning. Oh, God. Oh. And suddenly her phone rang. She had it on just vibrate. She had to leave because it suddenly her daughter. So, you know, she didn't, she didn't need my help, so she left. And uh, the minute she left, I was fine. I found out the next day she had a bad bladder infection. Wow. The next time you tell me. So I've grown up with this, and um, it persists till today. I can make it work pretty much whenever I want, but I can't stop it from happening. Um, yeah. Back three, yeah, two, three year, yeah, three, two, seven, a couple of years, uh, summers ago, one of my colleagues, the medical doctor, was, he grew up. I met him in the lab at UCLA. <clears throat> he was uh, in town. He wanted me to meet his girlfriend and her kids. I didn't know their names, so they came over. It was warm. And, uh, and he says, diagnose her son, okay, good-looking young boy, like eight years old. And I saw the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. <clears throat> Looking at him, it looked like the frontal lobes of his brain were missing. Instead of lobes in the brain, you know, brain matter, right. um, it was just dark, like they were missing. And I looked, what the heck, I'm rubbing my eyes, it's so weird. He had cortical encephalopathy. Or it's a flight of meaning it's a disease that eats part of your brain away. Okay. But now my colleague knew it. His girlfriend, uh, the mother of the guy, knew, the boy knew it. But I didn't know it. And then I looked at her. I swung my head over. Now she's a young woman, like 42, stunning, really gorgeous brunette. I said to her, God, you must have smoked like a fiend. You're on, your lungs are like old brown paper bags with a lot of dark spots on me. You have COPD? She, yep, yep. She freaked out. Her eyes jumped out of her head. She jumped up, grabbed her kids, and ran out of her like I shot her in the ass with a BB gun. Wow. So, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it's interesting to a point, but, you know, I'm writing a special edition of my book. It won't be out for some time. But I start out talking about what led, led me into the field, experiences like this. Um, if you think being a closet Superman is fun, it isn't. Right. Because most people 
if you have an ability that's not equally distributed in the population, which this is not, people oftentimes are frightened of you. They're weary. They're, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And when I finished my education in, 2000, in 1975, I got my doctorate, and I applied for jobs all over the damn country, everywhere. Not parapsychology, but as a, you know, in, in psychophysiology, biomedical engineering, blah, blah. And, you know, no. That's what email, you had, but, that's what you got yeah, your doctorate yeah, in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, all these letters went out, no responses. And I said, well, you know, now today it's done with email. There's no, you know, letters going out. So right. I don't, yeah. I, you know, weeks came by. Finally, a few got back to me and they said, You've got a lot of nerve expecting us to hire you. I went, What? What are you talking about? Apparently, I'd been on the front page of the, being on the front page of the LA Times News section one day. That covers the world. And then I was in LA Times again in a big article, a little before that, with a well known entertainment person. And then uh, I was on ABC News for a week. And the other thing. And other things. So by the time I got my doctorate, it was uh, my future was pretty much determined. Uh, these, you know, schools, ACA, these uh, universities were getting back to me. We could never hire you. Why? Well, you kind of strange, and you would intimidate, frighten, and distract other workers. You would intimidate them. You um, it would horrible, a very um, hostile work environment, a very hostile work environment. And I went, what? Well, yeah, no, it's too dangerous. We we could never. Okay. Now, early this year, I get some guy I've never heard of get told of me. I forgot his name. He is a um, he's a he's an, uh, a physicist or an engineer or something. And he and some friends were allegedly setting up a new parapsychology lab, not at UCLA, but at UC Santa Barbara. They wanted to hire me, be on the board of directors, and help set up some of the research. And okay, great. So I sent them some stuff from my website, and suddenly the guy freaked out. I go, what's the, well, look at this other work you've done. What do you mean? Didn't you look at the name of my book? You went, I didn't know you had a book. What? I said, where do you find me? On LinkedIn. But it references my background. We didn't look. All we saw was the doctorate, this, and then he saw the stuff, the, the stuff on ghosts, the upper poltergeists and apparitions and hauntings and the UFOs, and he went, okay, no, we, we, no, we can't argue. Again, hostile work environment, too dangerous. Um, you, you bring a real... But I said, but you didn't bother to check me out before you contacted me? Apparently not. Well, well isn't parapsychology... I mean, I understand maybe it's not necessarily the the um, study of ghosts and apparitions or UFOs. Well, that's, but, very, that's one part of it. But, but you're still, you, you know, right. as a parapsychologist, kind of thinking outside the box. So it kind of it surprises me that... That, that if he wants to set up a parapsychology lab, why would he freak out so badly? Because they only wanted to do one, a couple things. No, no, no ghosts, no apparitions, no poltergeists, no UFOs. Yeah. They wanted to do precognition and then what turned out to be remote influence, which is psychokinesis. So, okay. Okay. So, but they, you know, they hadn't even read one thing I wrote on my website. Oh, they read a, one thing I put up on LinkedIn about the, the medical patents that my colleague and I have developed. And right. uh, that's it. But he didn't bother to look me up at all. And I said, are you, are you people brain dead? The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing? No, I said, wait, is it, aren't you supposed to do your due diligence before you call me? Yeah. 
Okay, well, sorry. That was it. End of story. Well, Dr. Taft, before we talk about kind of getting into yeah. the kind of the meat, which is like kind of the, the entity case and some other cases, there's a couple of uh, terms, you know, to define here. And, and you talk about this uh, a lot in your book. Um, one is PK, psychokinesis, and mm -hmm. RSPK, uh, yeah. recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Can you kind of define what those are okay. and maybe the differences okay. and similarities well, the, between them? Psychokinesis, not telekinesis. Telekinesis right. is an antiquated term. Psychokinesis means mind over matter. Psycho mind, yeah. kinesis move. Okay, mind over matter, and the mechanism, whatever it is, is not based on anything electromagnetic we're aware of. Uh, meaning the forces at work, they may be affected by you know, localized electromagnetic fields, but they are not in essence electromagnetic. Okay, then you have recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. That is a term that more clinically defines poltergeist activity. Now, in psychokinesis, there are two types. One type is the type of worked on in a lab, microscopic, uh, affecting uh, the computers in terms of uh, getting affecting the randomization or you know programs. The other is, is affecting subatomic particles or affecting other types of matter. Uh, random event generator it used to be random number generators. Decades ago, we had something called the Schmidt box. It contained strontium-90 that could decay in one of four paths. Anyway, you could use it for psychokinesis or for precognition. Anyway, so there's two types. The microscopic is the stuff in the lab, the effect, affecting random event generators, blah, blah, cloud chambers. Then you have the macroscopic type, which is what we encounter in hauntings and ghosts. Right. And the problem is, you see, here's the problem. It's one thing to affect something a few inches or feet away in a subtle way. That's in itself pretty amazing. But when, it, and those, and when you do that um, microscopic, people show fatigue and exhaustion when they do it. It's not like you just flex your arm and it happens. Okay, now the, the macroscopic, the stuff with poltergeist activity, spontaneous fire fires, banging noises, objects appearing and disappearing, objects being thrown around, people being thrown around, objects breaking, machines starting and stopping. Okay, here's the problem. Okay, that's macroscopic. There is no fatigue or exhaustion seen uh, and part of the agents. The agents are people, living human people like all of us, but they seem to be a little different than other people in the respect that the majority of them seem to be hypersensitive to environmental electromagnetic fields. That could mean objects in your home. That could be the geo geomagnetic environment you live in that's beneath your house or the area. Secondly, the majority, if not most of them, tend to be either seizure-prone or epileptic. And what's interesting is this is a bilateral, it's a unilateral thing. The majority of people that I've worked on thousands of cases seem to be seizure-prone or epileptic. But most people who are seizure-prone or epileptic are not poltergeist agents. That means there's a missing or unknown variable. That variable could be the in person's inability to cope with stress. And, you know, everyone does that differently. Some people, no matter what happens, they're fine, they walk away. Other people, <laughs> one little thing goes wrong and they fall apart yes. emotionally. Yes. Um, so... This is what's going on. Now, we have all these instruments we take out, environments, and we can measure electric, electric fields, <clears throat> magnetic fields. However, measuring a bioelectric field is really easy. 
measuring biomagnetic is almost impossible. It's very hard. You need very sensitive superconducting quantum squid. It's called superconducting quantum interference device. The body's magnetic field is really, really low or weak in amplitude. However, among these unique poltergeist agents, their bodies are often putting out often putting out more than a million times the magnetic field of a normal person. Uh, gee, and you know, and so in parapsychology, in any science, you try to conduct experiments. You form you form a theory. You have to hypothesis. You then test it under controlled laboratory conditions. Well, that's right. fine for telepathy or precognition or remote viewing or whatever clairvoyance. But when it comes to stuff that we can't control or manipulate through variables, what or modify the parameters? What we have to do then is collect data over a very long period of time and look for to see if there's any longitudinal continuity in the data, meaning is there a pattern that we keep seeing? And just what I've said, yes, it's real, it's paranormal, but I'd say that 99.999999% of this is not from dead people. It's an extension of living human psyches. Like, I remember, uh, we've been in that on so many cases, I remember at the Playboy Mansion 10 years ago for Girls Next Door. I never heard of the show, and the co-creator I ended up knowing and he called yeah, me to yeah. go on the show. I said, okay, that's great. They paid me. Went to the house. And, you know, I don't know what existed there before. But, you know, it was nice meeting, you know, Hugh uh, Hefner and the girls that were there. And um, one of the girls, is seemed, the phenomena seemed to be focused on her. And uh, I put several of our magnetic detectors near her, and it went nuts. You're we getting 5,000 milligauss. That's five gauss. Coming from a human body? No. The other people there who were not poltergeist agents, you didn't see the thing. Yeah, it doesn't happen normally. Right, right, right. Yeah. You go, nothing, you took the same instruments, measured the other people, perfectly normal. Around one of the women, it went nuts. Gee, what a coincidence. Gee, and we've seen this over and over again. Their body, all this huge surges in neurological, neurochemical activity, spiking and spindling, and their bodies are emitting these tremendous amounts of energy. And yeah, you can measure them with normal instruments, but it's very rare for people to have this problem. If, the thing is, parapsychology is like, in a way, looking for answers, is like the three blind men and the elephant. Okay, so one blind man is grasping, it's arms around the elephant's leg and he thinks it's a tree. Wrong, it's not a tree. The other uh, uh, blind man is holding the elephant's trunk and thinks it's a hose. The third blind man holding the elephant's tail thinks it's a rope. All wrong. Why? Because they have limited situational awareness because they can't see the elephant. And therefore, they don't know what they're perceiving. This is where we are today. We're measuring or studying the effects of an unknown cause. Now, in, the, in getting back to the more subtle stuff, see, it comes down to this. Um, there's some evidence now okay, that... That our memory. This is called the um, oh, what's it called? Um, implicate order. Implicate order. It suggests, and there's one. We, well, I won't use his name because he got in a lot of trouble for this. He was an MD and a PhD. Spent more than 20 years documenting this at Caltech and other facilities. The evidence suggests that our memories, our own memories, long-term memories, are not stored in our own brain. 
Well, then where are they stored? In this external power field, which is called the, the uh, uh, you know, oh, I'm blanking. It's, just the, um, it's a, a power field, basically. And it's that we, that we, we access them by linking up with that mechanism. Um, this is amazing. Because sort of like our what, own, sort of like yeah. our own internet in a way. Right. The, the, yeah. the way we're designed, with the way we're built. Um, you know, I, one of the blogs on my website is called Impl- "Implicate Order by Design," meaning that if we are indeed designed to do these sort of things, that our memory is stored independent of our brain. That means whenever we remember things, as I'm doing now, when I'm speaking or not doing now. What it says um, basically implies that our, our, the way we pre- remember things is accessing something through what might be called remote viewing. We're, it's a power field that, that is not, oh, it's called yeah, the, the zero point field, zero point energy field. And it, it's the only thing that makes sense. So if the way we're defined is to access this on a daily basis, every day, and that's the way we remember to do everything, that means there is no paranormal. Paranormal is normal. We've been led, to, we've been misled and misguided into thinking this stuff is not real. Not only is it real, but it's the way we may be designed to work. But see, this brings up another problem. This success is the information that makes up the, that made up the past. Not the, not the people, the information still exists. It also means the information here and now, whether it's in the room you're in now, the room I'm in now, or miles away, or thousands of miles, or millions, is accessible, or the, and or the information of the future, not the events. The information of the future already exists. And what we're doing with telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition, we're accessing this information right. remotely, non-localized right. information. And depending on where it comes from, in regard to where we are, we perceive it, will determine what we call it. It comes from the past, it's retrocognition. It comes to the future, it's precognition. Displaced in space, independent of of a viewer, it's clairvoyance. Displaced in space, uh, someone else's mind, that's telepathy. So it's it's all the same thing. Right, we're actually all, dealing with the same thing, yeah. Right. And it's how we perceive it that's different. Right, exactly. And the, this may explain a good, good part of what makes us human, but it also gives rise to the possibility that we may have no more control over our future we have over our past. In other words, what if we discover in the end, all said and done, that the future's already there where we sort of what we sort of we're like water that we fill up the container we're in. We take the shape of that container. So what if the future is as immutable as the past? Then what? Then what do we do? You know the the old uh, there have been science fiction movies and shows done on this where you know someone um, you say you know that your friend John Smith will be hit by a truck on January second, the morning of January first, two thousand seventeen. You don't tell them that it might freak them out. You invite them over for dinner, you slip them a Mickey, you put them in, in the spare bedroom or closet to avoid the accident. 
Well, what happens is he's in there. He doesn't wake up. What am I doing here? It's all dark. He doesn't know how he got there. Suddenly you think, well, he's not going to hit by a truck today. I've saved his life. Uh, what you didn't see was that a big truck jumped the curb, came into your house, and killed him because he was in the closet. Yeah. Or at Lynn. <laughs> um, you know, this, this is, this is it's, I mean, they've done Twilight Zones on episodes that dealt with this. Yeah. Um, an old series in the late 50s, early 60s called One Step Beyond had these sort of things. An example, 1970 was my last year, last year of undergraduate college. So I met a girl in the psych department named Sharon. The best way to describe her was she's a clone of the current Jane Krakowski, the actress. Exact same looks. I mean exactly the same. They could be twins of each other, although I don't know how, how tall Jane is. Anyway, so we were dating, and not Jane, but this girl Sharon I knew in college. And everything was great. We got along really well, and then came the dreams. And the dreams, I'm in the back seat of a car. I didn't know it was my car because I couldn't see the dash, and all I saw was the back of someone's head driving, but I couldn't tell if it was me. However, I could see the passenger seat, and in the passenger seat, seat, seat was Sharon. So we're turning down the cul-de-sac to get to her house in the valley, San Fernando Valley, and suddenly a large, dark car flew out and hit us. Horrible impact, glass flying, bank smoke, the whole bit. And suddenly things clear, and I see her bloody and unconscious in the, driver, in the passenger seat. I went, oh, no. So I didn't see, couldn't tell who was driving still. So I had the dream a couple of times. I go, this is not good. So what I did was... Uh, I told her about the dream, and, and she was upset with me, but not for the reasons I might suspect or, or expect. Um, she was angry because she thought I was making the whole thing up as a lie because they didn't want to date her because she lived too far away. I could, hey, gas yeah. was 25 cents a gallon back then. <laughs> Who cares? Right, you know? right, right. right. Um, they had a good car and all that. Why would, anyway, I said, look, it's not Even with it. those big 70s gas guzzlers, right? Yeah, I had at the time, I had two cars. I had a Z28 Camaro with the dual hollies on her manifold from the factory and four-wheel disc brakes and the heavy-duty Ford, anyway, everything. Then it had a Corvette, which I ended up turning a race car. It was too hard to drive on the street, an L88 Corvette. Anyway, so we stopped dating, and she eventually started dating someone else. Like I said, hey, if she threw at me what I threw at her, I might have reacted in the same way. She's very skeptical. So weeks, months go by to get a call from her mother, Yep, the accident occurred. The driver was killed instantly, and she was badly injured. I didn't change a damn thing. I misinterpreted what I saw. My ego put, I must have been in the driver's seat. No, I never saw me. I saw some guy with thick, dark hair, but it wasn't me. Right. So, okay, did I change it? Probably not. Um, let's go to uh, 1975. So this girl, I'm with the girlfriend. And in the dream, I'm piloting a 747. It was TWA. We were on approach to South Africa. I have no idea how I knew that because, you know, those airlines don't fly high enough to see continental features, you know, divides. Right. So we're on the sand, and suddenly the drone of the turbofans goes up. It disappears. We're at the dead stick. We're going down. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And we crash in my dream. I jump up out of it, sweating bullets, and let's go to my girlfriend. What's wrong? I just crashed a 747. What? So they had just gone into service like the year before. Did some checking. Nope. 
So I couldn't call the FCC because I didn't know when or where. I just knew what. Within a week, is it a month, is it a year, is it 10 years? It's, it's a, just fantasy in my mind. Well, I, I she told the girlfriend about it, Darlene, and the whole bit. And a few days later, the first 740, 747 went down. It was a TWA, and it was on a post to South Africa. You, you know, in that, and I just read that actually in your book, like last night. Um, you, you, it's interesting that particular dream because it's almost like, how did you know you were in South Africa? Well, it's almost like you were in the pilot's head or no, no, somewhere no, in the see, cockpit. Right, right, exactly. Because yeah. if you're looking out of the the the, the uh, cockpit of the airplane, the cabin, you can't tell where you're at by looking. Right. There's, you know, exactly. Yeah. If you were double, if you were double the altitude or triple the altitude, yeah, because you see exactly where you were. But you can't. So that means, and also, how did I know the plane is TWA? Yeah. I don't know. I just knew it. Yeah. Right. And I, then, I wanna, yeah, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask you about the role of epilepsy. I was going to kind of say this for a little bit later, but the role of epilepsy in PK, this is something that's fascinated me, and I've, I've heard you speak about it before. I actually know someone that uh, is suspected of having epilepsy, not, not mm-hmm. quite certain that she actually does, but I can tell you that weird things around this girl. What type of things? Well, she's had, uh, well, uh, there was a belief like it's actually been on my show, actually has talked about it, uh, Ouija board experiences where the Ouija board has moved. Um, you know, I think that that's something that's kind of common for a lot of people. She's heard auditory, uh, things like she heard, uh, what she thought was her brother Mm -hmm. going to the bathroom and she went upstairs and no one was there. Uh, certain just kind of those, those kind of, Precognition as well. But what about and physical these, phenomena? I mean, objects appearing or disappearing or moving or. Uh, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she has she has told me that she has like, things had moved. Okay, but it, like, it, I can't remember yeah. specifically yeah, it, what it, what it, moved. It, see, what I do when I go down cases, I fill out a very lengthy form. They ask these people a lot of questions about their background, their health, their family health, what medications they're taking, uh, whatever, uh, what the general what their diet is. Uh, what their family history is. And what's odd is sometimes you ask about the epilepsy or seizures, and they go, no, no, no. You say, well, you have any sleep problems? And they go, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, like what do you take? And one woman said she took, um, oh, God, I forgot the name of the medication. And it was an uh, clonopin, which is an anticonvulsant. And I went, clonopin? Yeah, she says, well, I get these spasms in my muscles, and it stops that, and I can sleep. I go, I, she didn't, yeah, so that would be, similar because you're getting neurological spasms caused by problems in the brain. Right. So, oh, and then if you don't ask the questions, you know, don't take measurements, you're not going to learn anything. And so, it's, see, it's not like this is happening occasionally. This is happening all the time. And yeah. my guess is if you could do a very elaborate study, a lengthy one, and track people who went around the world visiting haunted locations, 99% of them, you go there, they read them and go there, nothing happens. Very small percentage go there, and stuff occurs while they're there. They have an encounter or an experience. If you do medical workups on them, you'd find they have a neurochemical imbalance. They have a uh, they're epileptic or they're seizure prone. And um, one guy called me years ago after I talked about this on our Bell show, and he said, you know, it's odd you mentioned that because I, I was having this stuff a lot or happened to me, and then I started taking the medication from my epilepsy and it not only did the 
epilepsy stopped, but the seizures, but the phenomena stopped. Yeah. Then he started stopped taking the medication because he didn't like the way it made him feel. So yeah. the seizure started, and so did the phenomena. Now, this suggests that the same part of the brain may be responsible for both things, but it would cost a fortune to test it, and any doctor, any MD who got involved with this would very likely lose his license and would never be able to make a living again. Right. Well, two cases that I want to ask you about, mm -hmm. Dr. Taft, and that is, of course, the Entity case, mm -hmm. which was made into the into the movie. Like I, like I said, I've only seen all the movie, and uh, the <laughs> just like a couple of months ago, and but uh, that case and also the San Pedro case. Right. But about the Entity case, is you know, what were some of the manifestations that okay, were going on there? Okay, first, but let me make some blanket statements up front. One is sure. the, the the entity movie was based on a novel written by Frank D. Felita. Okay, right. He did a great job. He he we we was with us at Doris Blatter's house a long time, decades, forty years, more than forty years ago, and witnessed things and interviewed her at length. So remember, it's a novel. I'd say at least ninety five percent of that novel is fictitious. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, kind of like novel. Amityville Horror. Well, know? no, the Amityville Horror was a hoax from the day from day there was nothing. Oh, uh, okay. But what I knew, people that investigated it, the academicians, they could verify nothing of what was in the book. Anyway, let's not waste your time talking about that. Um, the <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So the entity case began uh, in the summer of two th of nineteen seventy four. My colleague at the time, Kerry Gaynor, was talking to one of his friends in a bookstore in Westwood, Hunter's Books. It's one of the few accurate parts of the movie. Yeah. And yeah. In, the, in, in the aisle over, Doris Beither, with one of her friends, heard my colleague's conversation with, um, uh, you know, his friend. And about, so she said, oh, by the way, my house is haunted. So Carrie said, give me your number, uh, and we'll get a hold of your number. So, okay, we're now Culver City, two days later. It's on Braddock Drive. And the house is still there. A little, it was well back then. It was a broken down little shack in really bad conditions. Uh, been twice condemned by the city. Anyway, we go go to meet her. She's got four children, each from a different husband: three boys and one young girl, a baby we never met. Okay, small okay. woman, a little bigger than me, dark hair and blue eyes. Very cryptic and evasive in her answers. And the very very first thing she said to us was that she'd been repeatedly raped by a ghost. And went, oh God. The woman's out of her mind. You know, she's insane. Mm -hmm. Rolled yeah. her eyes back. I wrote a P on top of the form, which indicates psychosis, that, you know, you're wasting your time. Oh, thank you for time. That was it. About a week or 10 days later, she called back. Some neighbors had been over, and a friend had they had witnessed things happening. Okay, well, assuming they're not lying, that gives a little more objectivity to the case. So we go back. It was a hot August night. Neil Diamond wasn't there. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, the house was really odd. The bedroom felt like a refrigerator, even though it wasn't air conditioned or was the house. Very hot and humid at the time, very muggy. So we're in the kitchen talking to Doris, and a lower cupboard door swings open, and a frying pan comes flying out across several feet and hits the floor. So we check for wires or kids or animals in there. No, no, or pets. No, no. So it escalated over time where we began to see these strange, what I call corpuscular masses of light. 
uh, not orbs. Uh, orbs, you hear about orbs, 99.99999% of orbs are absolute crap. You want to see orbs, be in a real dark room, take a really bright illumination source, like I have a keychain with four LEDs, you put it on and you can see this particulate of dust. They are everywhere all the time. You flap your hands around moving them and you'll see all this motion. The only right. place you won't find those dust particulates are in clean rooms where they build satellites. Yeah. And uh, you want to see them also take a laser, fire it away from you in a dark room, little speckles within the laser light. Those are dust particulates captured in the beam. No, no orbs and crap. Well, we saw. You also we deal see, with insects too. Right, yeah. right. We what we saw were large, the size of several two fists together, large fists, or and they were always lime green in color, zipping around the room. Now, in my book and on my website, I talk about this, and um, I uh, uh, there are some pictures, and they are quite remarkable. One of the pictures you see, Doris is on a bed. And the walls behind her meet at a 90-degree angle. This is very important to remember and to take note of. Doris is framed by an arc of light. Now, we never saw that. What we did of seeing were these lights zipping around Doris. And we got an arc. So what we might have gotten was a time-lapse picture. We had even shooting faster in terms of exposure time. We mean that stopped the light. We were shooting, we were shooting fast enough which Kodak triax, you had to push it in development because the room was really dark. And behind doors, the walls meet at a 90-degree angle. This is really important because if this project, light source was projected against the wall, like in the case of fraud, the arc of light would be bent in accordance with the wall, and it is not, which means right. the light is in free space. Now, what's paradoxical about this case most of what we saw, we couldn't photograph. Most of what we photographed, we couldn't see. We see yeah. another frame where Doris isn't even in the frame, and these two arcs, they're one's running top to top, the other bottom to bottom. We never saw that. So we gave the uh, camera and the, the negatives to the West Coast editor of popular photography, a man by the name of Adrian Vance. He examined it. He wrote an article, the first ever, only ever, in popular photography. And he said, I have no idea what this is. He said, 35-millimeter SLR cameras should not even be able to record something like this. He has no idea. Okay, wow. now, the woman, we couldn't prove or disprove a claim of she was raped because she was no virgin. Um, but we began to see more and more lights flying around the house. And at one point, um, we, we got a call from Doris at about 1.32 in the morning. We go running back down there in Culver City. Carrie lived in Brentwood, Westwood, and I lived right in the edge of Beverly Hills. Go, going back there, we go down there, and all, we, now well, here's the thing. The well, first picture we got of this luminous anomaly, it looks like a ball, a comet with a tail on it. We couldn't tell where, where it was coming from and going to. We had no reference. Where was it in the room? What direction did it face? So we covered the room in black poster boards with duct tape, and we made a checkerboard on her walls and ceiling. And each board had a number and a magnetic orientation, so you knew where you were shooting towards or where you were at the time. So we come back to Doris's place, and all the boards have been torn down with the duct tape, and the plaster and the paint is torn down with it. 
Now, she could have gotten on a step stool or a ladder and done it, but for the way she was reacting, I didn't think so. Now, and then another point, the case went on, um, lights were sh- zipping around, but this was over the course of three months, almost three months. Um, at one point, the uh, the lights coalesced into a went within the bedroom. They merged and they formed a large apparition from about the waist up. It was not a stat- static image. It was definitely dynamic in the sense that it was moving. You could see the head, the brow ridge, the shoulders, the pectorals, the upper arms, and it was lo- like it was looking at us. And what mm. then? This is we didn't capture this on film. We shot a lot of uh, frames of film, and nothing showed up. And um, but again, it was lime green in color, and it was huge, maybe two, six to eight to seven feet was huge. Okay, so what was that? We don't know. Now, you know, the suggestion is that maybe there was some electromagnetic energy in the house that was causing us to have hallucinations. Well, if that were the case, and of course we know that can, you know, from the work of Michael Persinger, that very low levels of electromagnetic energy can induce both visual and auditory hallucinations. Okay. Yeah, this is but, his, but, his helmet. Yeah. Right, right. But it, if you do that to, first of all, all of us would not have been affected in the same way because we're all a little different from each other. Even though we're the same, we're different. So you wouldn't have the continuity. People would pitch. people would see some things, others wouldn't see anything. Before we did, we said everyone to sit down and write down what you saw. Don't discuss it. Everyone described the same thing. So if there was such a mass form of hallucination, which you don't subscribe to that theory, um, it doesn't isn't supported here. If there was hallucinating going on, we would have had a very wide variety of what we saw, and that was not the case. Which, mm-hmm. okay, so what did we see? Another time, the fuse box tore itself out of the wall and just missed Doris's head. We weren't there. And then um, candelabras were thrown at her. So eventually she moves from Culver City to Carson. We did bring her to the medium because she would have made a terrible witness for many reasons. So we finally found her, tracked her down with the help of Frank D. Felita. had already met with her many times, taking notes, and he was writing the novel. And uh, in her new house, she, her neighbors did nothing about her. She didn't talk about what was going on. Now new things started happening in her new home, similar. So we're there, and this is in my book. Um, we're holding a little seance, and suddenly a vase flies across the room, and it lands in the middle of everybody without hitting us. And then we hear a, we had a, a, a condenser mic on this small cassette recorder I was using to record audio. And uh, we hear a voice. And we hear, like, hard breathing. And we hear feet dragging, like an old episode of The Mummy from Universal. And it approach, approaches the condenser mic on my small recorder, and it shuts it off. Okay. And, okay. So the woman, she moved again, either to San Bernardino or to Riverside County. And again and again. And, I, and last time, we didn't hear from her until the movie came out, which was in 83. We that, that movie came out. 30, long time ago. Long, yeah. long time ago. 32 years ago. Yeah, 32 years ago. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she liked it. and I didn't like it because the direct, they were supposed to hire Frank Defilated to direct it. The last minute took it away from him, and they gave it to, uh, uh, what's his name, Sidney J. Fury. And he thought we were all nuts. Because he thought we were all out of our And he rewrote a lot of the script, and I didn't like what he did. Uh, but, hey, you know, once it goes out of your hands, that's it. Yeah. 
That's kind of Hollywood, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, you know, there's a chance I'll be doing a remake, but it won't be a remake. The version of the movie I will be making will be a movie based on what is written up in my book and on my website. It will not be based on the novel or the original film, because that is fiction. What we're going to do is, it's a dramatic film, it's a drama, but it will incorporate, what, there was no, like in reality, there was no psychiatrist Doris was seen. No. Yeah. There was, and so that was part of the novel, and it worked. I mean, you know, what's interesting, when um, we were casting it, um, Barbara Hershey pleaded with um, uh, Frank DiFilita and uh, I forgot the producer's name or whatever. Um, to, he, she wanted the lead role. She begged him, okay, as did uh, Ron Silver. And then the movie comes out years later, and uh, they all, the, the biggest mistake of their life, the biggest mistake of their life. What? Yeah. Because uh, the movie got lambasted in the media. It was, they tore it apart as being misogynistic and being, you know, just terrible and whatever. Uh, and then Barbara, biggest mistake, I said, yeah, after she pleaded with everybody to be on it, she hates it. And then she ends up doing Insidious several years ago. You know, like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's hey, her. Yeah, hey, right, she's, an, yeah. Hey, she's an actress, yeah. right? And one right. of my friends was making a miniseries or a, with one of the cable networks, the high-end cable network, the Showtimer, with her. And he, I, he, I told him that she didn't want to hear about this. So she comes and he's talking to her. He mentions my name and the entity, and she said to him, if you mention that man's name again in that movie, I'll walk off your film and you can sue me. Wow. And then Ron Silver hated it. And Frank DiFolito was in New York years ago before Ron Silver passed away. And he went up and said hello to him. Ron Silver said, I never want to talk to you. The biggest mistake of my life was to be in your film. Hey, you're the one that wanted to be in it, remember? So, you know, what do you do? Sounds you like know, Dr. Stuff. Taft, for, for the most part, I enjoyed the movie. I just like, but that, those those last few scenes... Really, uh, with trying to freeze the ghost, I just was like, uh, you lost me. Well, see, here's the whole thing. Here's <laughs> where this comes from, and it's pure science. Uh. It's physics. Um, when Frank DeFolito is writing the novel, he was talking to me, and I was filling things in. So all of our drivers, well, you know, in science, your job is to collect data. Well, okay, light is produced when electrons jump from higher or lower orbits in atoms, as they do when they're um, stimulated. Uh, they emit photons. Right. That's what light is. Okay. Right. Well, that's a mechanical process. So my theory is, if you slow down the mechanical process, you would stop the mechanism that's producing it. You may be able to see it, at least be able to examine it. So why not try to freeze the phenomena when you see it? What would happen? Yeah. Now, they have found ways to slow light down, different mediums, not with paranormal, you know, in various mediumistic uh, things. And um, they're seeing odd things. I, the whole point, literally, it's, it wasn't a pipe dream. It's science. You, we do, you drop the temperature of the phenomena to near absolute zero. And if it is a mechanical process, it will be frozen. It will be stopped. Yeah. So it's pure science. Of course, right. that event will never happen because, one, there would never be money for that, and two, it would be extremely dangerous to have a person close to that from a supercooling because <laughs> yeah. you'd, you'd turn them into a giant popsicle. Yeah. You would instantly kill them. Yeah, instantly. Yeah. Right. Because if you're ab absolute zero, well, I mean, that's... 
Well, yeah, you yeah, you, you, you crystallize the body, and you and you be the little crystals, and you break apart. Yeah. So what do you do, right? It's no, it, it you know it um it was fun doing it. I mean, it was okay, and uh, but I don't think you know on my site I have a uh, one of my blogs. It's called the Frozen Ghost, and I said other than the title of one of Universal's many horror movies featuring Wolfman and Frankenstein, um. It's, uh, or just Frankenstein. Um, for all we, you know, you know, you know, what if? What if you have all the means and the money to do it, and the phenomena was there, and you spray it with liquid helium? What would happen to it? You can't freeze light. Light has no rest mass. I mean, the light in itself has no rest mass, but other objects do because they have mass, and they move, they pick up more mass, and whatever. Right. It's just sheer physics. I have to ask you too about one of the aspects of the case, and that was the fact that she claimed that believed that she said that there was three right. ghosts. Right. One would hold okay, her, okay. Now, two would hold her down, one okay. would rape no. her. Okay, now if this she had is, three boys. This is um, pure psychoanalysis. Okay, yeah. she claimed that there were four, there were three entities. Two smaller ones would hold her down. The one big one would rape her. Now, in reality, she had three male children, two younger, smaller ones, one older, bigger one. And then she had a strange psychosexual relationship with her whole family. And each kid was from a different person, different man. And uh, my suggestion is this is a pure edible thing. It was a narc an extension of her own libido that yeah. we were basically played out through psychokinesis. I don't believe for one second that a ghost Two salt ghosts held her down while one raped her. It's an extension of her. It's just like a, a culpa. It's a manifest, her psyche manifested this. Nice. Yeah. And she was a troubled lady. Now, she died, I think, more than a decade ago, like in the late 90s, I think. Um, and she died pretty young at the age of 58 or 59, something like that, and of cardiopulmonary arrest. They never figured out why her body stopped working, but it did. Um <laughs> Was the apparition that, that you saw, do you think that that may have been a manifestation from her? Yeah, I mean, in the book I talk about this on my website, yeah. that this is a projection of her subconscious or unconscious, that she was a very sexually oriented lady, and she might have had some kind of strange psychosexual relationship with the three boys. And yeah. uh, all I know is she was very cryptic and evasive whenever we tried to interview her. She was much more open about her life with Frank DeFolita because he was an older man, older than her at the time. We were younger than her. She never told us her age. She would not tell us her age, which mm. is a little weird. Anyway, um, you know, she was abused by her family, and she was also disenfranchised by them or disinherited because she was so rambunctious, and she was like a wild lady. And But see, this is, it's, it was a libidinous fantasy projected from her. It takes right. that new meaning. And obviously, there were no cameras rolling to see, oh, was there something really there, or was this an extension of her own psyche, or is it all the same thing? We don't know. You can't prove it, you can't disprove it, but we can certainly, you know, we were enough witnesses that witnessed these lights and the apparition to lay, at least remove the possibility that's all on her own mind. The San Pedro case was similar, too. Yeah. Um, into the entity case, in, in in the fact that you had a woman that had a small child, uh, two children um, actually, two children, yeah. and it, you, there were some similar aspects to that, and yeah. and someone actually in that case 
actually really did get physically hurt. Yes. Um, the and there's a picture began, of it. The case began in 1988, actually, where a woman named Jackie Hernandez saw me on a show on ABC or NBC News. I don't know what it was. And then she finally had her friend call me, a girl named Susan. A few months later, she got the nerve to call me herself. We went down there in August of... Uh, 1989 in San Pedro, very hot and humid, and living in a little tiny um, bungalow in the back on um, on 11th Street in San Pedro. So with Barry Conrad, it was uh, Jeff Wheatcraft, an associate of Barry, the cameraman, and yes. myself, and a few others. Long story short, we started seeing the place stunk, really had a strange odor, similar to the entity case, like decomposing or decomposing organic matter. Secondly, it was very hot and humid. Thirdly, the woman was living at her wit's end. She almost had no money, two kids, and you know, apparitions were being seen, which have showed up in Barry Conrad's cameras, his video cameras, and Barry Conrad has been and still is a, a professional video cameraman. He's not some guy just runs out chasing ghosts. Made a very good living of, of you know, being a professional cameraman. So, it, it, why it struck out against Jeff? See, the phenomenon kept growing and growing. Jackie, really nice lady, living, I mean, it's amazing she survived all this. She looked at Barry and she really liked him. Tall guy, dark hair, blue eyes, very friendly, affable, successful. I think she misinterpreted his help as one of, it's a place she can go to. But she began to look at Jeff as an impediment, as a, as a, and Jeff didn't believe a word coming out of her mouth when we interviewed him. Hmm. Which is Jeff's just more skeptical. Long story short, um, for one of the first nights we were there, Jeff's up in the attic where we heard banging noises and we couldn't find anything. And something violently pulled his camera out of his hands. And we found it broken in two parts, the body on one side, the lens on the other, and it wasn't damaged. It evolved weeks later into Jeff, someone trying to hang Jeff in the attic with a clothesline wrapped in a bow and knot around his neck, and it was picking him up over a bolt in the rafter. Had another one of our friends who was working there, Gary Bame, had not been in front of uh, Jeff when he went, oh, like that, very likely Jeff would have died. He would have been and, strangled and by it. Who took the picture at that Gary moment? Bame. Gary turned, okay. and there were no lights on. The only way yeah. he could see was by firing. He never fired the camera, and he Fire see Jeff yep. being pulled up, and he's got a rope around his neck from the plastic clothesline. Wow. So, it's now, a creepy picture, too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very creepy. Well, the case went on. It's in my book. Chapter 3 of my book is called uh, uh, Hazardous Haunting. And it's really relevant because Hazard is the maiden name of Jackie Hernandez. Jackie yeah. Hazard. And also, it was hazardous to both Jackie and to Barry and to Jeff. Now, what happened, the case is very complicated. At one point, Jackie's going to Barry's house, and he lived in an apartment in um, Studio City in North Hollywood. Oh, yeah, Studio City. And uh, Jackie would show up and leave, and she, you know, Barry would give her cameras to take pictures with because she didn't have any cameras. And uh, after she left, phenomena kept breaking out at Barry's apartment. I mean, this is in my book and in Barry's video. The question is why? Why? Well, the reason it started attacking Jeff was, and you read about this in my book and on my website, Jer uh, Jackie began to seriously dislike Jeff because she was really interested in getting closer to Barry 
and she viewed Jess, viewed Jess as an impediment, as a as a barrier to get closer to Barry Conrad. Now, what yeah. we didn't know at the time is she occasionally went to Barry Conrad's house in studio, his apartment in Studio City, and she stayed there a few times, and Barry and her got involved, and who cares? I mean, you know, she's divorced, and he's single, right? whatever they want. They're adults. But then right. he played games with her. He would throw her out while inviting another girl in there, throw the other girl out and invite Jackie back, and Jackie was getting more and more angry. So what we're seeing with the attacks, the psychokinetic manifestation in, in uh, various apartments, and the attacks on Jeff to see the psychokinetic manifestations of Jackie's anger. It's, yeah, it's you know, like, it like an makes, extension of her psychosis. In a well, way. no, no, don't call it psychosis. Okay. She was, it was, you know, we, it, if, we had, if we knew then what we knew now about, about the epilepsy or whatever, it would be great to run her up in some studies, but that yeah. almost 30 years ago, no one thought like this yet. Um, but it was amazing because... Again, she really. We were doing a show for hard copy, so Barry was out shooting somewhere somewhere else in the country. It was uh, myself and it was uh, Jackie, and I said to the producer of this episode, who was there, a woman, let me ask Jackie a question. Okay, that's Jackie. What do you think of Jeff? Because I don't like him. Why? Well, he's always getting in the way between Barry and me. So I said on camera, they in and out of the show. This is what I'm talking about. This case is an extension of Jackie's subconscious. The woman went, what? Huh? Yeah. I, I don't get this. I mean, and then, okay, she lives in San Pedro. She moves. The phenomenon moves with her. Okay. But then new people move into San Pedro who know, knew nothing about her or the case because Barry hadn't produced anything yet, nor had we been on TV yet with anything. And new people moving in the original bungalow, they start having activities similar to Jackie's. They move out. So this suggests there's something unique about that environment that charged up to Jackie. Like, you know, when you're healthy, you go to your friend's house. they got a couple of kids. You go in and you hang out with your friends. Even though you're not near, near the kids, you come home and you get sick, you give it to your wife. We know what that is. That's called contagious vector pathogen. Okay, yeah. we know what that is. Well, this, there isn't any vector pathogen here, but there's energy that's similar. She was living there. It irradiated her, she imbibed it or absorbed it, it altered her in a way we don't yet understand. She moved and kept emitting it long after she was gone. But meanwhile, new susceptible people came into the environment, like Jackie would. Some were susceptible. Their body absorbed it and they began re-emitting it. And this is in my book. I, I call such people biological operational amplifiers, waveguides and focal planes. I mean, it just, it, it's if you look at it's unbelievable. You keep seeing the same thing over and over, over and over. Now, if I could go back 46 years ago and tell my young self what we know now, that my young self would go, you're nuts. Because no one thought like this. No one thought like this. Right. No one did. Because right. we just didn't know any better. Now, and you know, the problem is that these shows – you know, I think people really want to know what's going on. And most of these shows, you know, they lie and they fabricate things. That's why I called it the, the it's paranormal unreality shows. <laughs> I just, you know, I had it with this crap. It's ridiculous. Well, you know, the, there was a paranormal witness uh, oh, yeah. show that on sci-fi yeah. that dealt with this. Case. And, you know, guess what happened? They approached me to be on the show. So yeah. they sent me a contract that says, um, 
a small amount of money, which is okay. It said they they might accidentally or intentionally do things to humiliate, embarrass, libel, and slander me. And if I sign the contract, I am not allowed to speak of it to anyone, nor am I allowed to comment in the media or to friends about what they've done. I went, what? Huh? I said, are you people out of your mind? I said, okay. They wanted to offer me 750 bucks for my appearance on the show, which is, I guess, adequate. I don't know. But I said, okay, here's how it works. You want, it, want me to sign this contract? Add so four zeros. That would be 7500 That'd be seventy-five thousand. That'd be seven hundred and fifty thousand. That'd be seven point five million dollars. Write it up as damages of the year show. They yeah. won't do it. I said, <laughs> you, you know, I said you people are nuts. So I wrote some stuff online and uh, about it on my website. And a couple of weeks ago, this producer who knows the producers from Raw TV that do that did that show. The show's been canceled, thank God. And. Um, <laughs> You know, and I just apparently what this guy said to me online, email, was that uh, I've done a lot of damage in the writing I've been doing about these shows. I've really hurt them. Well, that's what happens when you tell a lie. You don't tell the yeah. truth. And they don't care. So apparently this guy wanted to hire me for some new thing, and, and he wanted to use me to raise money, but he wasn't going to give me any money because I, if I helped him to raise it. And he said, well, he wanted me to sign his disclosure, non-disclosure so I could never again speak about his friends or what they're doing, ever. So before we move on, kind of, because I want to hit yeah. the alien stuff, I want to hit right, the alien right. abduction stuff, mm-hmm. but I want to – so you would pretty much say that these shows, all these reality shows that are on – uh, ghost hunting shows, you'd say that they would probably do more harm to the field yeah, than they if do you, what, good. What they're doing is, first of all, they're crying wolf too many times. Um, yeah. you no, know, I can tell you this. I've been doing this work for 46 years. You have a much greater chance of being hit with an asteroid in the next five seconds than you do of encountering a ghost when you go out to find it. Or half of it. Just, yeah. not gonna, and, and remember, let's say you're a producer an executive producer of one of these paranormal reality shows. You have a real logistics problem. You cannot, it's an hour show, you can't have talking heads for 41 minutes and 32 seconds out of an hour, or your ratings will be as remote as your chance of capturing a ghost on video is. So that means you've got to do one of several things. One is you fake things. Two is you exaggerate and embellish whatever might occur. And the last is you populate the show with a lot of crazy people who are more interesting than if there were ghosts on the show. You and, also can edit it to seem like more exciting. Than well, that's what I'm saying. You embellish and exaggerate uh, whatever's going right. on. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I only paranormal reality show I've been on twice now is Zach Baggett's Ghost Adventures. And everyone asks me why I worked on with him several times now. Well, he's the only producer and host of his own show who has not asked me to lie about the case involved or myself or my work. That's a big order because everyone wants me to lie and lie. Or I say things and they edit in a way where I'm saying something different. Zach wanted me to tell the truth, and I did. You know, yeah. Zach was very nice about it, nice guy, got along really well. Um, I'm not on the show to judge him or what he does, but I'll tell you one thing. You know, we become sort of friends because I respect what he's doing, and he's also like me. He's a gearhead. He's really into cars, which is great. Um, but also, he never asked me to lie, and so far, he's the only one who's been who's been, been willing to do that. The only one. Before 
the genre began 11 years ago. I was approached by a producer. I won't use his name, but they don't want to, I don't want to promote him. Never heard of the guy. He had an office here in Los Angeles, so I meet him. We're doing the show. Okay, well, let me ask you this, sir. What's going to happen? What do you mean? Well, he said, I said, nothing's going to happen. Oh, yeah, we, we'll fake it most of the time. And then when something does happen, we'll make it look like a hoax. I said, well, it was nice knowing you. Walked out the door. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So it's just it's, it's crap. <laughs> well, you, you've, you've increased my res- respect for Zach Baggins just a, a little bit here. So that's, uh, that, that's good that he's what, not also, asking what, anyone what other, to lie. One other thing I want to mention. I've come up with a term um, um, uh, for describing the paranormal reality genre. It's the, the acronym is um, um, it's called Entertainment for the Ignorant Masses. If you make an acronym out of that, it's um, entertainment. It's Ephem. <laughs> gotcha. Ephem. <laughs> and that's what I think of them. Well, in your book, Dr. Taff, you, of course, it's called Aliens Above, Ghosts right. Below. And we, you do talk about UFOs. And uh, one of the chapters you have is specifically on alien abductions. This is something we've talked about a lot on this show. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've had uh, you mentioned David Jacobs in mm-hmm. in your book as well. I've had Jacobs on the show actually. Um, very interesting interview. Very interesting mm-hmm. guy. Uh, but I wanted you have some kind of personal experience. Now, you don't have any like abduction experiences yourself, but there no. were others who were around no. you. No, I've investigated some abduction cases, and the ones I investigated, you know, some men, some women, um, and one of them got very personal because it was a girl I was involved with. 38, right. 38 years ago. Long and short of it is, uh, Valentine's Day, 1977. Okay, I went out in the case with my colleague here in uh, West Hollywood. Never didn't know the people. Walked in the door and I saw a girl who, to me, was the most beautiful woman I'd ever laid eyes on. Um, she like if I was was going to design someone genetically for me, this was it. Um, yeah. She looked. There was a long dead actress. Not she's long dead now, but in 1977. Uh, she died in seventy. Uh, the actress's name was Mary Blanchard, and this girl I met named Judy looked exactly like Mary Blanchard. I mean, exactly a clone. And we you know, so we start. We became friends. Kept talking. Started dating. And you know, she was a lot of weird things are happening around her. Balls of light coming off her poltergeist activity in her in her apartment. You know, but subtle. And, you know, so we, she attended our research groups at UCLA, and it was great. I mean, it was we were compatible in every way. But then came the dreams. And in the dreams, all I had, I kept having them about a month after we met, all I knew was on July 22nd of that year, our relationship would end. I didn't know why. I just mm-hmm. knew what. So I tried to forget it. I didn't tell it. Dare tell her because she might misinterpret it as a way to get out of the relationship, which I did not want to do. Um, so I forgot about it, but I wrote it down. And the dreams are always the same. No information right. other than what occurred. So July 22nd rolls around, and I just most likely forgot about it. So, you know, we wake up. She's under the covers, and she's crying. She won't come out. What's the matter? She said, why didn't, I, why didn't you help me? I go, help you with what? When the room lit up. I go, what? What room? What? what lit up? What? What are you talking about? The room. What are you talking about? I remember I met her because there were poltergeist activity around her. And uh, 
She says, well, under the covers, the room lit up. She found herself being picked up out of the bed like floating. And then she found herself inside a round metal room. And she was restrained on a metal pedestal-like table, like metal, some kind of bright metal. And she was restrained in her ankles, her wrists, her abdomen, and her neck. And these little guys around her, their skin looked repelling, and she gets terrified of snakes, big black eyes, the classic grays. No nose, no outer ears, no mouth, but she could hear them talking. They weren't going to hurt her, blah, blah, blah. And she was freaking out. They're cutting and probing. And so I said to her, she's under the cover still, do you know anything about UFO abduction? She goes, what? What, what do you call it? She knew nothing. Had no interest in the subject at all. No. Okay, so an hour and a half later, I finally coaxed her off under the covers. I was amazed. Um, now, remember, I was around her for several months a lot, so she didn't seem crazy or disturbed or psychotic. Or Okay, she comes out. She had black hair, white skin, and dark brown eyes. Around her ankles, her wrists, her neck, and her abdomen were black and blue bruises. Her hair okay. got cut. Um, she was bleeding from her ears, her nose, her rectum, her uterus, and she wasn't menstruating, um, the edge of her eye. And there looked like someone had taken a little melon ball and taken skins on her, skin out of her back. And went, oh, my God. So I asked her about you if she had no interest. Uh, okay. So to neighbors, if you, um, I didn't, we didn't tell anyone what happened. Because, you know, how do we know what she didn't know? She thought, she didn't know what to think. Some neighbors said around where she lived in Hollywood, they said, did you see that thing last night? I go, what thing? Was hovering that over here? I go, no, about 3, 2, 3 in the morning. Big uh, glowing object like reddish orange hovering, and the power went out in her place for more than two hours. I didn't know what that was about. And they saw it. Okay, so can I prove it? No. Can I disprove it? No. If they had to make a bet, I'll say she was abducted. But I was laying next to her in the bed, and nothing happened to me. But again, I wouldn't take me. If I were there, I wouldn't take me. And I mean, it, it, as silly as that sounds, I suspect that one of the ways they manipulate us is through fear and intimidation. Uh, I mean, just be, be silly for a moment. This isn't that silly because I had to live through it with this woman. Um, they would say, hey, no, this guy wants to know our propulsion technology, our avionics, and our guidance. We, no, no, we, we don't need this guy. And but sure, no, we can't do it. Right. But, so whatever. Now, I've been in touch with this woman a few times over the years. She became a religious zealot, but not a normal type of a really strange, almost cult-like group, but not the ones most people are aware of. I don't want to promote it by even giving a name to it. And, and she right. claims to have been re-abducted over. You know, she did get married to some guy, and she claims to have been re-abducted over and over. Go, well, yeah, who knows? She might have been abducted before I ever knew her. So that end, now, had this relationship ended, not ended, excuse me, we would have been married within a year, and my life would have changed in ways I can't even imagine. Wow. But, you know, so that was, talk, why did you ever get married? Well, my fiancé was abducted. What? Huh? What? what, what huh? <laughs> so. It, you know, one interesting thing that I've, that I've encountered, and, and you write about it in your book, is the, the existence of this, PK phenomenon, this yeah. poltergeist phenomenon, in conjunction with these people that are being abducted by aliens. Right. Or are, are experiencing alien abduction. Paranormal fallout, yeah. Where they have yeah. abductions and afterwards paranormal phenomena start happening. Yeah. Um, others have written about it a long time ago. The late D. Scott Rogo wrote about it. Uh, Jacques Vallée has written about it. I've written about it now. And 
we don't understand. The only thing that makes sense is whatever UFOs are, wherever they're from, they may be using energy that we call paranormal the same way we use electromagnetism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know. It's, it, it's at another case, um, I think. Oh, one was, I can't give the name of a person. He's re- retired, but he was a TV network executive. And I met him because of Poltergeist case, ongoing things, he and his wife, very nice people, and, you know, married for a long time. They didn't have any kids. They lived way out in the valley somewhere. And it uh, started with, you know, PK, Poltergeist activity. and evolved then into, uh, they were taking a trip up north driving, and they, uh, they found a, they saw what they thought was a plane about to crash behind the hills by the, by the highway. So they drove around into the canyon, and they came, turned a corner, and there the ground was a large disk. And these little humanoids outside of the disk picking things up off the ground, and they freaked out, oh, my God. And suddenly the beings were aware of them. They aimed some kind of a tube with a light in it. They blacked out. They suddenly find themselves jogging on the freeway many miles away hours later. The missing time aspect. Right, right, right. Yeah. And they, they were marriage collapsed. This guy couldn't hold a job. They became bitter and angry and kind of, you know, um, kind of, you know, very unstable. And, you know, so, you know, it's odd. It began as, as a paranormal thing or an RSPK thing, and it turned into an abduction. And we have other cases like this. This is, you know, it just it gets too weird. And why does this happen? We don't know. So does being, having one thing make you prone to the other? We don't know. Um, well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. You know, I spoke to, um, and I believe you may know this person, Stephen Lachance. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, you, you know, he's written a couple of books about his experiences with a really seriously violent haunting that he experienced. And one of the things he talks about in that is he actually has a UFO encounter mm-hmm. in the book. And uh, so, and uh, Bill Bean is another person that I yeah. can think of that has had the same, you know, right. uh, violent haunting as a child. Mm-hmm. Later on, he was having the same kind of experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we've looked at on this show has been some of the ways of, and you mentioned um, Dr. Persinger. Mm-hmm. And you know, Persinger, in his experience, in his experiments, puts that, electromagnetic helmet onto these people's heads, these students' heads, and they will actually see these little gray figures, as well as people that have taken the drug ayahuasca, which, Mm -hmm. as I found out that you actually worked on the film Altered States, Mm -hmm. so you know, ayahuasca, people have the same experiences. They'll see these same beings and these these, uh, reptilians, like what's your, uh, the woman that you knew, what she experienced. Uh, Is there a role in with altered states of consciousness and in, in this phenomenon well see here's the most important thing because we can artificially recreate a hallucinatory state in our mind with a site with a hallucinogen or electromagnetism doesn't mean that a, a, a real event related to such is untrue it's like you know yeah. because we could make movies about going to the moon or whatever. There are people have been saying for years now that the whole moon thing was a scam and it was done in the studio in Hollywood. Um, but see, again, you can't, it's bad, it's really bad logic 
to infer that because we can fake something or because it can be simulated through normal means that the real event did not occur. That's faulty logic. It doesn't work. And, yeah, um, actually, I'm kind of coming from it from a different angle mm -hmm. in that I don't believe that it's just simply a hallucination. I believe that there is an intelligence that's being that's being communicated with, but through the altered state, it it's communicating with us. Well, we do know that, you know, I mean, then there are altered states of consciousness that, like when we were doing these uh, side training group, ESP training groups at UCLA decades ago, and we first, in order to get it to work, we would lower people into an altered state through progressive yes. muscular relaxation and, you know, um, whole control breathing. And in that state, you're more prone to access because your mind is a tabula rasa. You're not dealing with your body in that moment. You're just waiting, waiting, waiting for images to form on that screen in front of your eyes or mind. And that's one of the reasons the Gonsfeld experiments have worked so well um, in terms of eliciting a sigh in a controlled environment. Um, yeah, I mean, also states of consciousness is very relative, re re relevant here. And the problem is that sometimes people get carried away with it and they lose their sense of reality where they're, they believe. In other words, if you start paying more attention to what's going on in your head as opposed to what's going on around you, you become a vegetable. You know, yeah. that's called psychosis. Right. That's the social right. behavior. Um, I've seen this happen all too often where there was a, um, there was a guy who one of the psychiatrists at the NPI, and he came to our group a few times and kind of freaked him out, and then he went to Egypt, and they snuck with the period, pyramid, and he came out yelling they were demons in their entities, and then he ended up killing himself. Um, another mm -hmm. guy, used to, one of our regulars on our side training group at UCLA back in the 70s, and he's a writer, and he seemed pretty normal to me. He was very calm and whatever. Long story short, he starts working there, and he ends up, you know, having precognitive visions of different people he known die, and they weren't sick, they were killed in accidents, then his sister, and then his mother, and then it turned out that he ended up committing suicide. Um, it's, you know, it's, opening one's mind could be a good thing, but also could be a bad thing. Yeah. You can't control what comes in when, and uh, it's very unsettling to some people because it's like a blind person seeing for the first time, oh my God, look at this. And I know you worked on that film, and you did explain to me before that you know some of that what you what you had written probably wasn't used. But you know, um, I wasn't aware until about three years ago that Alter Taste was actually based on a real case, uh, right. Doctor Lilly. Right. I, I believe he was taking uh, ketamine. Right, right. Was what he was taking. I mean, and he it's was generically based, not you know. Yeah. This, the whole thing is he. This is the biggest problem with all of this investigating the paranormal. Because our minds are so supple and be influenced by so many different variables in and around us, right, it, it's right. hard to really control what's going on if you don't know what you're doing. And, uh, for example, on my website, and I think on my book I mentioned a little bit, that we may have reached the stage where we might be able to reverse engineer the phenomena of poltergeist. Instead of laying around scratching your heads hoping for something to happen on a case, you manipulate the electromagnetic environment and you drive the phenomena the way researchers, like uh, neurophysiologists, drive your brain waves with a, a photic strobe, meaning a, a strobe flashing lights in front of your closed eyes. It will drive your brain waves. Well, we want to do more than that. We want to drive the phenomena. Well, you might be able to do it, but you might end up electrocuting the person. Because it would yeah. fry their nervous system. So, what good is it? 
You know, I, I do find it intriguing that if we can unlock some of this stuff, just the amount of power mm-hmm. that we may be able to um, to reveal. And also, along, <laughs> the, along the this line, this is what's even more interesting. Um, I got a feeling that once we understand what's behind, you know, the PK, the RSPK stuff, and we're, I think we're looking at a new form of energy. It is not like there's only four types of energy that we know of. There's electromagnetic, there's strong weak nuclear, and there's gravity. That's basically it. We don't know anything. Right. Yet right. the energies we're talking about here in these dramatic cases in poltergeist activity and uh, like with Jeff being picked up, thrown on the wall like a rag down, San Pedro mentioned, shown in Barry's video, discussed in his book and in my book. Um, before that would happen, by the energies we know of, when he was before he'd be lifted up free of a physical mechanism, Everything in the room, including his clothes, would burst into flame by the liberated heat during the work done. Well then, what? So the room also gets cold before the event. It doesn't get it doesn't get hot, which indicates that we're looking at a form of endothermic energy. It doesn't yes. emit energy. It absorbs it, or it's another form of energy. And I have this gut feeling that if we ever discover what this is, this can send us to the stars. This could build, we could help power starships with this. I discussed this on my website in my book. Yeah, and it's like you, the, the 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 concept of zero point energy. Right, exactly. And, and you you mentioned that in the entity case right. that you know that the the room that was constantly cold even mm-hmm. though it was the middle of the summer. Right. There's no source, so you know, it's, the more we learn, the stranger it gets. That's the problem. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. You know, another way of describing it would be one second. Let's say you're on a lake, and it, you know you're suddenly seeing a wake being produced in the water, but you can't see the ship making the wake. That's where we are. Oh, look at yeah. the lake. Where's the water? No, where's the boat? There's no boat, but what's making? That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. This is where we're measuring the effects of an unknown cause. Got it. This got it. And I think in the end, what we're going to discover about all this. We're not going to like it. It's going to make us aware of things existing around us we have no more control over than we do over the date we're born and the date we die. And I don't think I think it's going to be unpleasant because it's going to describe and depict a reality where we're in some ways more responsible and in some ways less. So it may. Well, that always seems the double-edged sword, right? Of yeah, technology. Exactly. You get one you thing, know? you lose others. You know, there's no good way. There's no bad. It just is. So, you know, it's, it's, I've lived a really interesting life, but at the same time, you know, you scare a lot of people, they think you're nuts, and they run away from you. Yeah. And, it, and I, but I think, I think lately that people are running towards this kind of stuff. Uh, there's not, people in that ac- really... not in academia or in the, in, right. in the academic world, no, and in the financial right. world, no. Give an example. Several years ago, we submitted my business plan do with my medical devices, which have nothing to do with parapsychology, to a major uh, multinational electronics firm whose name I won't mention. Long and short of it, uh, the, this, the executive vice president of development read our plan, was very impressed, wrote up a splendid re- overview and review, and passed it upstairs that they should develop, in, initiate simultaneous development on three of our five devices. Great. So months go by, no word, no word. So finally, I make some inquiries. The head of the company calls me regretfully, and he and he starts saying, "Yes, yeah, business plan was crap. There's no evidence you've done any clinical work." And he said, 
um, yeah, this you couldn't interpret the patents. I go, what are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? And they said, oh, then I said, oh, sir, sir, stop. Tell me the truth. Stop lying. It was a long pause. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. I said, okay, tell me the truth. Stop lying. Okay, I'll tell you the truth. I never read it. I looked you up. The minute I looked you up, I knew it was crap. Ghosts, aliens, poltergeists, ESP. You're nuts. Boom, gone. I think that's so unfortunate. I, I really do. Now, if, it, um, if I become, let's say I become some sort of celebrity, but made a bunch of movies and made a fortune, well, then they don't care if you're nuts. You've done something that's made a lot of people money. That's all right. they care about. Unless you have the name behind you. Yeah, but yeah. as long as you're, you know, people think you're nuts. And so couldn't get a regular job after graduating, finished school, graduate school, because people, and I, that, was 50, that was 40 years ago, because yeah. they think you're nuts. You know, so it's it's a it's a, I have to tell people if they if they're willing to get into this, spend a lot of time, they get a lot of media media attention, they might not get much work because people think they're crazy. Right, and, and I believe that may be a reason why some people that are coming up in this field now maybe are just not even pursuing an academic career. Right, because they know it won't. They'll end up nowhere. Yeah. You know, no one will get near them. And and these shows are doing a tremendous disservice to the field of parapsychology because they're making, they're disinforming the audience into believing that what they're seeing is real when it isn't real. Yeah. And, and, and it's becoming an aspect of popular culture, which, which academics kind of shies away from as right. well. Exactly. But, you know, when I said, when I mentioned that thing at UC Santa Barbara earlier this year, it was very strange. But I said to the guy, didn't you bother to check the title of my book? No. Didn't you read any of my website? No. And I said, you're the one setting this thing up? I said, since they've got the wrong person. I mean, like, uh. they're idiots. It's just like, <laughs> now see, if they had hired me, gave me a contract, and then they fired me, I got to sue them because I would have lost money. Right. So... He said, oh, no, we can't deal with this stuff. Oh, no, people will disrespect what you're doing. But it didn't disrespect what you're doing, did it? Well, Dr. Taff, uh, you know, we're kind of running out of time, but I, I wanted to um, well, I wanted also to throw something to you as yeah. well. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned about UFOs and, yeah. and, and the psi um, mm -hmm. connection there. And uh, actually, uh, yesterday, in fact, I watched uh, from the early 70s an uh, episode of The Amazing Kreskin. Oh, yeah. And uh, he had Jay Allen Hynek on, and Hynek had actually, I think by that point, had come to the conclusion that there was a lot of connections with the psycho, with the uh, paranormal and right. the psychokinesis with U UFOs as well. Yeah. So I found that I found that interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. The more we learn, the stranger it gets. Yeah, it's true. It's very true, and I've, I've definitely experienced that from doing this show. And we're speaking to a lot of people <laughs> in in various different fields. Right. Uh, but I wanted to you to tell us about you know, what you're working on now uh, with future book projects, and also I believe you have a podcast that you're going to be starting called the right. Sci Files Project right. uh, podcast. Right. Um, well, let's see. My new book is, is called again. It's a special edition of my first book. It'll have twice as many chapters. It'll have a lot more details about what's been going on about what led me into this, what got me here, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
Um, it'll be far more comprehensive. It'll a lot of my lengthy blogs on my website that are not in my book, first book, will be in this one. So it'll be a much more comprehensive and detailed discussion, discussion of what I've been doing. As far as what I'm doing now, I already recorded two podcasts that are being edited. We're going to do more probably later this month, and uh, then more from there as depending on how things go. And then, uh, as I said, I will be one of the executive producers and writers on another entity film, but it is not. We're not doing a remake because the film was based on a novel which was fictional. This version right. will be, have almost nothing to do with the novel. will be based entirely on Chapter 2 of my book. Excellent. So that's Very really cool. Long. So, you know, other things, some graphic novels in development based on certain chapters of my book. Well, you know, and that will lead to other things. And so there's a whole bunch. But so far, nothing. We haven't been greenlit on the movie yet. Um, we, we're actually going through some of the preliminaries of that, finishing development. And that um, would have a lot of interest in it. And uh, I definitely don't want to have a cameo in the film, that's for sure. When we were shooting <laughs> the entity in, eight, in 81, they, it would have been interesting, but now I have no interest in going in front of the camera. No, thank you. <laughs> what character was supposed to have been you in the entity film? Uh, okay, they were the short guy with the dark hair and glasses. Okay. Yeah. okay. Now, in the first Poltergeist film, one of the characters in there was supposed to be me as well. Remember, there was a black guy. That obviously wasn't me. <laughs> then there was the other guy with the real ruddy complexion. Something bites him in the side, and his face falls apart. And yeah, uh, tears that his was face off. To, that yeah. Was, yeah, that was uh, supposed to be me. Okay. We were Very shooting. Cool. We were shooting. Pol- they were, we were shooting the entity on the same lot as Poltergeist across a narrow walkway. They were seeing our dailies, and they rewrote the film. And from what I remember, was told by one of the, I the executive producer, they shot a rape scene with Joe Beth Williams. And they rewrote the film to make it look more like the entity. And they were told, not by me, that if that scene is in the film, they're going to be sued because then it would be the entity. And, and they they shot it, but they cut it out. Wow. So, Interesting. It's little, little, little tidbits. Little uh, tidbits of insanity. <laughs> well, Dr. Taft, thank you so much for being on Conspiranormal. It's been very enlightening, and I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to close out this segment, uh, but stay on the line with me just real quick, okay. and uh, I will be right back to close out on Conspiranormal. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Of course, it's me, your wonderful host, Adam Sane. Once again, Lukeless, and uh, Rob is going to be going to his work his festivals and so he won't be back for another month or so but a very interesting interview with dr barry taff i thoroughly enjoyed it the man is like i said a pretty much a legend in his field um i've known about dr taff for a good long time i think originally the first heard of him on coast to coast um he's always a guest that i've always wanted to get on so this was a real privilege and a, and a real treat to get to speak to the guy and and pick his brain and you know once again uh, someone that you know has studied uh, parapsychology studied ghosts but also at the same time has studied the realms of alien abduction of ufos and uh, someone that goes through a bunch of fields in in the same paranormal realm uh not going to keep everybody too long like i said really not much witty banter to you when you're by yourself but uh so sad for me <laughs> but i uh, just want to thank everybody for listening to the show um you know, please uh, send us some comments. Uh, we would love it. To, you know, we got a Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash conspiranormal. 
Uh, you have conspiranormal at gmail.com is another way to, to reach me. And, uh, you know, I'd love to get some feedback and to correspond with everybody. Uh, also, you know, uh, ways to listen, you know, download from conspiranormal.podomatic.com or on the Fringe Radio Network and on IPBN Radio Network. So, so join us next week, uh, or actually about two weeks from, from today, going to have on RJ Von Bruni. We're going to talk about the, uh, <laughs> about the key of the book of Enoch. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting show. Uh, I'm really excited to dig into that material. And also in, about three weeks from now, we're going to be having Nick Redfern back on, and we're going to talk to Nick about one of his latest books about conspiracies, and uh, looks looks real interesting stuff. And I also want to get to talk to him about the Roswell slides as well. So some great things coming up, guys. Uh, just uh, stay tuned. Great things on the way, as always. And thanks for listening to Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.